then I think that you're right. If we're all seeing this incredible moment, that's what I was saying about we're all a little piece of FDR, because where people are saying, all right, the government isn't doing it, how are we going to get the information we need? How are we going to organize to do what, what needs to be done? And I think this is a, this is a destructive moment, but it's also a really creative moment amidst all the pain. Performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that stress may have lasting impact on your sperm, at least if you're a guy. Oh, wait, you have to be a guy to have sperm. It turns out that prolonged fear and anxiety from any major stressor, well, say like a pandemic, can not only take a toll on your mental health, but maybe also on your sperm composition, and it can affect your future offspring the epigenetic effects of a pandemic that have nothing to do with a virus, in other words. And this is a finding out of a really provocative study that was published in Nature Communications that came out of the University of Maryland School of Medicine. They said the effect of stress on fathers can affect fetal brain development in the womb, and the effect of stress is transferred to their offspring through changes in the extracellular vesicles on its interaction with maturing sperm. And here's the critical finding for the study. It's that those changes in the male reproductive system can last for at least a month after the stress diminishes. In other words, if you were super stressed three weeks ago and you get your partner pregnant now, it can affect your offspring. This was part of the Better Baby Book research where we didn't have this, but the whole theory there was, look, men and women need to calm down and detox and get their mitochondria and other hormonal systems working before pregnancy, three months before And this new research definitely supports that book, even though the book is now nine years old, The Better Baby Book. And what that means for you is, hey, we're going to have a lot of coronavirus babies. 20 years from now, they're going to be talking about the corona boomers. I'm not even kidding. The sales of uh, sex toys and lubes and things like that are through the roof because people are bored at home and they're saying, hey, sex is how adults play. And that is actually a quote, I think, from John Gray or one of the other guests on the show. And this is something people are doing more of, at least if they're at home with a partner. So what does that mean? It means take a deep breath, meditate, and hey, now may not be a bad time to start a family. Who knows? And if you do it accidentally, well, I think that we have enough episodes about birth control hormones and other health things that I can help you out there as well. Now, you're asking yourself, what is Dave going to talk about on the show? Good question. Today's guest is Jamie Metzl. He's a leading futurist, a geopolitical expert, a science fiction writer, media commentator, and senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, served in the White House, State Department, United Nations, Ironman Triathlete, and he's the World Health Organization's expert advisory committee member on developing global standards for governance of human genome editing. He also knows a thing or two about coronavirus and viruses and how we might make ourselves more resistant. So this is going to be a show not about what should you do right now because there's things going on, but what are we going to do so that we hack ourselves out of this problem that has existed since before there were humans. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Happy to be here. One of the ways we first got connected is that you're a faculty member at Singularity University. 
uh, which is Peter Diamandis' uh, thing, I, I don't know, his, his group in Silicon Valley. I've lectured there. I'm actually an adjunct faculty member, although I haven't actually done a formal course there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so I, I've seen you around and about. But you talk about you know, the future of genetic engineering. And I, I've got to ask this straight up front. A lot of people listening to the show, uh, including me, are very suspicious of genetic engineering uh, because... Mostly it's been used to sell a lot more toxic soil things. <laughs> it's been used yeah. to sell pesticides, basically, and herbicides, not necessarily to, to do good for the world. Is it really so, safe? Yeah, well, so there's a lot in, in there, and so let me just cut to the chase. So when people think about genetic engineering, the first story that people have in their minds is genetically modified organisms. Uh, and that's really, that's a technology that's been around since the 1970s. They used to call it recombinant DNA. And everybody's had this fear. And a lot of people have a fear of genetically modified crops. And some of that is, is very real. But at the same time, genetic modification is something that our ancestors have been doing for thousands of years. Go back 10,000 years. You can't find corn. You can't find most of the things that you buy in Whole Foods, even in the organic section. So our ancestors have been using selective uh, breeding to hack all sorts of things, including plants and animals. And our ability to do that has obviously jumped up. And now we're able to use technologies to jump species. And so what jumping species, that brings everybody to this situation that we're facing now with the coronavirus. There's a lot of things that have jumped species. We actually have tons of viral DNA within us as humans. So the boundaries between- percentage. What percentage of us is viral DNA? It, it's, it's like six or 7%. I mean, it's a lot. It's like, it's like our, whole, our whole history is, is that. And so first with genetically modified crops, and we'll jump over that, that uh, pretty quickly. Nobody said we have to have, we have 7.7 billion humans going to maybe 10 billion humans. Nobody said we had to do that. If we're going to do that and we want people to live, we're going to have to use our technologies to make that possible. Our technologies like farming, like cities, like housing are getting us to this number. So it's every technology has its upside. It's its ways that can help us and its downside ways that can hurt us. And so it can't be technology. Yes or no. It has to be how do we best use technologies to help us and not hurt us. So that let me just jump very quickly to your next thing is for humans. We have these technologies. It really is important because we are going to be able to hack ourselves to get rid of deadly diseases and disorders and maybe protect us from deadly viruses. But the same technologies, just like GMOs, could be abused. Thank you. Uh, very well said. And for people listening, am I for or against genetic engineering? Uh, depends on how you're doing it, where you're doing it, where you release it, and what the intent is. That's like saying, are you for or against liquid? I don't know. It kind of does, doesn't contacts matter. Uh, so, and by the way, my answer would be the same for vaccines. Uh, they're not without risk because there are provable risks and it depends which person, which vaccine for what reason, et cetera, et cetera, there's schedules and there's probably a genetic and a microbiome thing to that. We don't even understand. So don't be one of those, uh, shrill for or against anything, whether it's pharmaceuticals, whether it's liquids, whether it's a certain plant protein or whatever, none of those categories are actually scientifically valid. What is valid is risk-reward analysis with very strict things. I've also gone on record, Jamie, saying, look, I want to genetically engineer my mitochondrial DNA. Like, I want to make my, my mitochondria into super mitochondria that make more energy and are super resilient to everything you can think of. I would do that right now if we had reasonable studies, if I could hold up my hand to be the first person to do it. 
So Dave, let me just interrupt you right there. Don't hold up your hand to be the first person. Let somebody else do that. You want to be, even as an early adopter like you, someone who's thinking big thoughts about where we're going, you know what they call the first person? A guinea pig. Be the 10,000th person once some other suckers have tested it because what we're talking about are systemic hacks to the humans. Remember, there was a while a few ago, a few years ago, people had this science that Liz Blackburn and others developed that your telomeres. Liz is, is amazing. We were together on the, on the stage at Google Zeitgeist not so long ago. And when she said, it's like, it's better to have longer telomeres. And so everyone said, oh, we should start taking telomerase, but then you get cancer. So that's why you have to do all the things that you talk about, about healthy lifestyle. And so just because something sounds good or it's helping mice doesn't mean it's necessarily safe or the right thing for us to do. And that's why I completely agree with what you said. Let's do the analysis. Let's use the hard science. But then let's, I think we should be aggressive and creative because this biology that we've inherited is buggy by design. It's that that's what evolution is all about. You have mutations and some of them are helpful and some of them are, some of them are harmful. And over time, your ones that are helpful within a given context win out. We like to think that we say some other sucker. A lot of times doctors would be willing to do this on themselves, but they won't because that could, that could get in the way of regulatory approval. Or there's people like me who are saying, yeah, I'll do it. And people saying, oh, no, I'm sorry, can't do it on you. It might hurt our company valuation because we're only in phase one trials and we have to get permission and we're going to spend a billion dollars to get this thing to market. Uh, how does that work? Yeah, so our whole pharmaceutical system is totally insane and corrupt. And when they talk about this billion dollars uh, to get to market, part of it is, is really legitimate science. Part of it is passing on the cost of marketing. Uh, we're, we're one of the only countries in the world that has direct-to-consumer marketing, and that's woven in. Part of it, part of it is just the, the partial, at least, dysfunction of our regulatory process and all the legal procedures and things like that. We have a great FDA, um, but what we've noticed uh, in this coronavirus crisis is that our whole country, we've become bloated and inefficient. We're the country that invented the entire concept of public health but we can't mount the kind of public health response that South Korea or Taiwan or Singapore can mount, even though we trained all of the people, all of the leading people in those, in those countries. So I totally agree that we need to find a balance between individuals making the best decisions for themselves, but within the context of a functioning government that's at least protecting people against things that are, that are unsafe, because especially for things like this, like aging, we're all, nobody likes aging. And people, if you said this may work, people will take all kinds of, of uh, do all kinds of experiments on themselves. And maybe if you're like a really advanced scientist, that's one thing. But if you're like somebody, old lady or man or whatever, maybe even my mother who's not so old, but who's saying like she doesn't like aging. And if I call and say, hey, take this, she'll probably take it. And so I think it's good to have some process for evaluating what's reliable and, and what's not. And, and that's a role that governments, I think, can reasonably play. You've said, and I, I tend to agree with you, that we can actually engineer humans to be virus resistant. How would you go about doing that and doing it safely? Yeah, so it's already been tried. Um, as you know, Dave, as you know, um, the world's first three genome-edited CRISPR babies already exist. I write about that in my, in my new book, Hacking, Hacking Darwin. And so there are these three babies in China 
And all of them, were, when they were pre-implanted embryos, their genomes were edited, edited um, with the goal of uh, mutating their CCR5 gene. I know it's technical, but basically that's a gene where some, particularly Northern Europeans, have a mutation that makes them increasingly resistant, um, enhances their resistance to HIV. So HIV is a virus. Like the coronavirus, it's a zoonotic virus, a virus that jumped from animals to, to humans. So we know that this, this coronavirus, it binds on the ACE2 receptor. And so conceptually, if let's just say we wanted to do an intervention that blocked this one virus, it wouldn't make a lot, a lot of sense because the ACE, it's not like this gene is just sitting around doing nothing, waiting for a virus to attach. It's also helping regulate our heart function. Um, so that's one thing is that we, for specific viruses, um, we, could, uh, we could interrupt the place where they attach to our, to our cells, our cell membranes. Um, but then there are people like the amazing George Church at Harvard, and George and I are, are doing an event together next week talking about this and, uh, and other things, who are saying, is it possible to engineer resistance to all viruses? And that's what they're working on now in their process of xenotransplantation, which is trying to, in this case, trying to make pig organs that could be suitable for transplant into humans. And they do that by knocking out a number of genes. So there are a lot of paths that we could take. And it feels a little sci-fi, but when you think that Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, uh, they had the seminal paper on CRISPR, which was about how to edit a, a genome of just like a simple cell. That was 2012. Six years later, 2018, the world's first CRISPR human babies are born. I mean, this technology is moving at warp speed, and it's only getting getting faster. So our, I mean, I also write sci-fi, but sci is becoming sci-fi. Do you have kids? I don't have kids. I'm too young. When you do have kids, will you hack them? First, in terms of hacking, um, and you talked about immunizations, I'm a huge believer in immunizations. So getting immunized is a hack. Uh, prenatal nutrition is a hack. Um, I think that the first application um, that people can do today is uh, is not necessarily genome editing of pre-implanted embryos because it's not, there's no doubt, it's not yet safe for human applications. Um, but embryo selection is happening all the time, and there's a lot of power in embryo selection. So the way that you could do it, and I probably would definitely consider doing it, even though I said I'm young, truth be told, I know your, your viewers, people watching this on YouTube can't tell. Um, but I'm not as young as I used to be, FYI. And so for me, if I were to do um, uh, with my, my girlfriend, um, IVF and embryo screening, the way you extract the eggs from the mother, and let's say it's around uh, 15 is the average, you fertilize those eggs through the process of, uh, of IVF. And then rather than selecting one just by sight, essentially under a microscope, which is what an embryologist would normally do, you, you, you grow them for about five days, extract a few cells from each, and then you sequence those cells. And now you've got a pretty decent sense, not complete by any means, of the blueprint, of the game plan for each one of those, let's call them 10 embryos. And then you can say, well, which one of these is going to be, and then you can say is going to have this certain number of single gene mutation diseases like sickle cell or Tay-Sachs. You could probably rank them in order from a likely tallest to likely shortest. And we're a very short 
number of years, single digit number of years from being able to rank them from likely highest genetic component of IQ to lowest. I mean, there are all kinds of ethical issues associated, uh, associated with this, huge. And that's why this isn't a conversation about science. Science brings us to the conversation. The conversation is about ethics. But would I um, select embryos to make sure that the one I was implanting didn't have a deadly genetic disorder? And for me, the answer is absolutely yes. And once I was going through this process to screen all of the embryos, and, um, and I had that additional information, even if it wasn't determinative by any means, would I want to know that? And the answer is yes. And would that influence my selection? Yes. And let, all right, so, but let's just say through that process, I only have one embryo because I don't have, I, and let's say, and, and so I only have one. And let's just say that one has a single gene mutation disorder that will determine, that will make it in, uh, inevitable that that kid is going to die of a terrible disease. Would I want that pre-implanted embryo to be gene edited just to make that one little switch? And the answer to that is yes. Would you also, heck, you're already going in there. I mean, a little bit of resistance to viruses, an <laughs> extra six inches of height. Yeah. Uh, you know, some longevity genes uh, that James Clements has identified with George Church. So now I wouldn't because it's not safe. But I think just as in the beginning of the age of, of vaccinations, in the beginning of 41 years ago, in the beginning of the era of IVF, people said, oh, that's, that doesn't feel natural. Not now, not 10 years, 50 years from now, what you're describing is going to be, oh, yeah, that's what we call baby making. Uh, there, that people are, we are going to use our technology. And it's not going to be like going to the Build-A-Bear workshop at the mall and just kind of pick a bunch of traits. And, but it's, it's going to be that you, you select the embryo and maybe they'll just, I mean, even with, with George, I mean, they have this great list of these, but it's, it's single gene mutation changes. And George and I debate this sometimes. I don't think it's going to be possible to make you know, a thousand simultaneous changes. There's so much complexity in, in biology. It's not infinitely complex, but it's pretty darn complex. But to make a single change, especially if we're removing a risk and we know, because we don't, it's not like every gene is doing one thing. We, our genes are doing lots of things simultaneously. It's not just one symphony. It's like six symphonies happening simultaneously. So if you're going to make a change at least if you know that you're removing something that's a terrible risk and you're changing it to something that's within the norm of humans, that seems a lot safer than the Build-A-Bear model. I, I think it does sound safer now. There's so much I want to go, go into on that. Uh, one of the things that, that happens naturally uh, is that the, the system of a mother's body decides which egg drops. And it's an epigenetic decision that's made based on all the environmental variables that can be read by the mitochondria in a woman's body. And it says, you know, this is the single egg that's most likely to survive the environment that I've been in for the last few months. And this is why the, the ovaries are studded with more mitochondria than anywhere else in the body. At least I believe that's right. why. I can't explain yeah. why else they're there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so when you do what you're talking about, are you, do you worry about making people reducing us to meat robots, you know, like th that, <laughs> this is the right egg. Like, no, nah, I'll pick the right egg. Cause I, I didn't like that one thing. Yeah. And I, there's, that's a very real possibility. And we, we need to be mindful of it. There are all these biological processes and we only know what we know. 
And we're, we're a hubristic species, always imagining that we know more than what we do. I feel that about my life. Like at each point, I think, well, I, I really got it together. And then two years later, I think, oh my God, I was such an idiot two years ago. How did, how did I make it? And, and so there's a lot that we don't know. We don't know that. We don't, I mean, there's, there's can be over a billion sperm cells in average male ejaculation. One of those guys is racing faster than everybody else. Why? What does it mean? How does that translate in, into fitness? There's, there's a lot that we don't know. So we, I think the, the, applying this whole re-engineering model is actually kind of, of dangerous. But at the same time, I think we don't have to fetishize nature. I mean, the history of our species is in some ways, sometimes we're, we'd like to imagine ourselves in harmony with nature, but we're kind of at war with nature. When we were living in nature, nature was trying to kill us. That's why we did farming and cities and all that kind of stuff. If you want to fetishize nature, just fetishize the the wasp that paralyzes the spider to lay its eggs in there so it can yeah. there and be eaten out from the inside. Yeah, uh, exactly. and, and at the same time, if you're going to fetishize nature, put away the clothing, the stuff that keeps exactly because that's a hack against nature. So yes. unquestionably, even most plants want to kill you. You don't believe me? Go outside and eat whatever plants you see and you'll either end up dead in the hospital or very uncomfortable. Like, like that, that's how much nature yeah. loves us, right? Yes. So we're in alignment on that front. Uh, I, just, uh, I just do wonder about that you know, if, if we take that selection part out without fetishizing nature, just saying that there's probably a complex system there that's evolved intelligently. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree, but nature has an error rate and we don't accept that, narrow, that error rate. And so when somebody's kid dies of, of some terrible genetic abnormality, we don't call it a nature, uh, an error rate, we call it a tragedy. And I think that's the nature of our species. And so if we can do better than that error rate. If people come to feel that they're going to have a kid and the likelihood of having a just a healthy kid is better applying science than not applying science, I think that'll be the tipping point. I, it, there'll be very few people who will say, all right, there's this natural process. The natural process is safer than the scientific process, but I'm going to go for the science process just for the heck of it. I mean, just like you said with self-experimentation, my guess is You'd experiment on your kid, on yourself, but you wouldn't necessarily experiment on your kid if it brought additional risk to that kid. But if you thought you could reduce that risk, then I think that would be part of your calculus. It does make sense. Um, okay, let's talk about that that risk thing. And okay, what about the people who are dying from coronavirus right now? The ones who are most likely to die is that an error rate from nature? Is that hackable? What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. What about the people who are 
dying from coronavirus right now, the ones who are most likely to die, is that an error rate from nature? Is that hackable? Well, I think it is. And we also th need to think that not every hack is a genetic hack. So I, I, I'm, I'm doing a lot of speaking on this. I, I actually gave a talk a couple of weeks ago for the big Singularity University COVID summit, and that talk went viral and has led to a bunch of other things. But here's the hack that we could have made that would have, few, the few hacks we could have made that could have totally prevented this crisis completely. We could have collectively created a World Health Organization that was empowered to do its job, that had a that had yeah that had a global surveillance system that well, had that one great. global surveillance man you're getting yeah. all excited no but for for deadly pathogens it's pretty important yeah yeah and that when there was a, a tripwire was hit like happened in China they had an emergency team that could immediately go to the place and these were people who were training all their lives to to squash some, something like this so we have a WHO it's not empowered to have that kind of surveillance system. China waited 42 days from when they knew about this to when they finally let the World Health Organization in. So that's one hack we could have. Second hack we could have, the Chinese government could have been accountable to its people and wouldn't have suppressed the, this story for about three weeks and let this small thing become huge. Another hack we could have had is in the United States, we could have had a leadership that took this threat seriously, which is what the intelligence services were saying we should do. And didn't happen. And the president of the United States, whatever you think about him, it's just a fact that he was saying it's not a big deal. Um, this is all a, a, a hoax and it's my enemies trying to get me and we're all in, in trouble. So not every, not every hack um, has to be scientific. And we have a lot of forms of passing on our heredity and culture and knowledge are really important parts of that inheritance. Okay. Uh, so what uh, you're saying that the biggest hack would have been you know, proper government systems in order to do this, you know, back in the days when governments actually worked on behalf of people, except wait, hold on, that doesn't really happen anywhere on the planet that I can see. Governments tend to work on behalf of governments, otherwise they lose power. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just the algorithm of being a government. No, I, you know, it's, it's so funny you mentioned that. I, I totally agree. I mentioned my Singularity University talk. And what I was making is the exact point that you've just made. What I said is that we have two stools of this internet, of this world of two, I'm sorry, two legs of the stool of governance. And there are the states. And then after the end of the, after the second world war, the states realized, well, geez, if left to our own devices, we'll, we'll kill each other. Let's create an international organization like the UN. But then they thought, well, we're not going to give away our, our sovereignty to this UN. So we'll kind of have it, but we'll not make it work. And what I think, and one of the things that I'm doing a lot of work on now is where is the voice of just humans who want our planet to survive? Because there's this total mismatch of these big global problems, deadly pathogens, climate change, weapons of mass destruction. But there's no political force that's saying, hey, we need to tackle these things. And then it happens and we say, oh, there's nothing we can do because our states aren't up to the task. So I, I definitely think that, that communities like your building, Dave, with just people sharing ideas, this has to be the foundation of thinking differently about how we can together tackle common problems. I, uh, I, I agree with you there. I, just, I, I don't know the, the right answer. I don't know that we're going to get to it on, on our podcast. But you said something on CNN that I didn't understand. And you said about the coronavirus, said this isn't really a 2001 moment. This is something much bigger. I think of it as a 1941 moment. 
Yeah. I look at the number of people who died in, especially from starvation in right. World War II. And I don't think those match the global numbers, even in the worst case scenarios here. Why do you, why do you bring it to this you know, mobilized world war kind of thing? So it's certainly not in terms of the number dead. I mean, there is no possible way that this virus could ever kill the number of people who were, who were killed in the Second World War. What I mean by saying that is there, there's a lot of people now who their point of reference, our point of reference is 2001, because it feels like a moment like the, the year of the 9-11 attacks. But the reason why I think this is more uh, like 1941 is I think this disruption will end up being the biggest disruption since the Second World War. Economically or sociologically? What, what I think it's going, so I, I think it started as a governance crisis, as I mentioned before, which became a health crisis which is now becoming an economic crisis, which will become a series of political crises around the world. The government of Kosovo has already fallen, but there'll be lots of other big state problems, maybe state collapses. And that's going to morph, I think, into over the coming year or two into a, a geopolitical, a global crisis. So that's one. I think this is the biggest disruption. And I think that we have a huge battle ahead of ourselves. But also the positive side is in 1941, FDR and Churchill came together and FDR talked about the four freedoms. They articulated the Atlantic Charter. They set a North Star, a set of principles that we need to fight for and that they could begin building the world on the other side of that, that cataclysm. So this is here. We have a huge fight ahead of us and the world on the other side is going to be very different from what it is going in. But now's the time we need to be thinking about what we want that world look like and making sure that it's a world that reflects our best values. That sounds like a, a soundbite. A world that reflects our best values. What does that actually mean? So, yeah, no, it's a great question. Yesterday, um, from this very table in my dining room, um, I led a call. We had 120 people from five continents, 23 countries. Uh, I had posted on my, after my singularity talk, I, I stayed up all night. I drafted what I called a declaration of global interdependence. I sent it out to my email list and said, we have to fix this. We don't have an F, we're in this crisis. We don't have an FDR. We don't have a Churchill. We have to do it our, ourselves. And the, the response just from that email has been great. And so we have to build this. It's like, we don't have an FDR but maybe everybody can be just a little piece of FDR. And if we, if we come together, we can imagine something different. If you had gone to our ancestors who were these little nomadic hill tribe, hill people or nomads wandering around and you said, we're going to create a thing. It's going to be a state and all these jackasses who are stealing your horses, you're going to be part of one team. And then you're going to have enemies in some other place that you've never heard of. And, and it, you don't even know it exists. You'd say like, that's insane. And yet we did that. And then we had states and they said, oh, we're going to have a thing, a League of Nations, where all these st warring states are going to come together, or even Europe, where they've been you know, murdering each other for hundreds of years. That was insane. And so is it insane to think that we can have a new way of organizing ourselves where humans come together and say, hey, we're humans and we want these big human challenges solved? It feels crazy now, but I hope that there's a path. And even if we try and spectacularly fail, Maybe we'll only 90% fail. And that means we 10% didn't fail. I, I am very hopeful that uh, governments will actually have a little bit less influence, especially on these insane regulatory things, huge wastings of money, uh, so that people become sort of virtual citizens of multiple things. So it, it's ultimately where you spend your money. 
um, that drives what happens. So when people join a community or, or join a, a movement, that that ends up just taking a bigger weight um, of their attention, of their time, uh, and of their resources. Uh, and sure, we all need roads and we all need the things governments do, but I think that uh, there's been a lot of a lot of progress on all of these fronts that's been limited for political reasons, not because that's what people wanted. And it's been made a hundred times more expensive than it needs to be. Yeah. So if people are saying, I'm just going to do it, I didn't really need permission from the people who make my roads. Uh, Maybe, maybe we'll get there. I I don't really know, but I, I'm very concerned about this turning into just like uh, 2001 did. Yeah. But, but what, what, it's a great point, but what I would add to it is that there are, in the category that you say we need people to build roads, like we need we need a, a, a center for disease control that does effective tests for pathogens. And I definitely agree. Our government and lots of governments they start lean and hungry and they get big and bloated, and it, and that that's a real problem. But the functions that our governments are now doing are really essential. And at a time like now, we're feeling the consequences of government failure. We're all coming together to try to solve it ourselves. Um, but we need governments, but I totally agree. Our governments need to be lean and functional and they and not encroaching. But ironically, all these libertarians who are reported libertarians who are leading our government now are because of the total government failure, we're becoming more socialist than even Bernie Sanders would have made us had he won the last the last election. So I, I think it's finding the right balance is the it is finding the right balance, and I, I might sound like a libertarian there. I'm not a libertarian. I was when I was 20. After you read Ayn Rand, you'll be a libertarian for a year or two, but generally you get over it there. I pissed <laughs> off all my libertarian friends. But the, uh, the, the point there, though, it is people you and I know, um, heads of labs, uh, uh, some of them actually closely involved with Singularity, I was on the phone with them privately, and they're saying, Dave, we've had the ability to test for COVID for a very long time, and the regulatory agencies in the U.S. forbid us from offering this. Sure. Okay, So I didn't need the government to allow me or not allow me or to bless a test. If they blessed a test, I might have given it more credibility. They also blessed MSG, which is bad for you, and NutraSuite, which is bad for you. So their blessing is of limited value. I agree. I agree with that. Completely. So you're like, all right, guys, thank you. If I want your rubber stamp, I'll pay for it. And if not, like, get a better rubber stamp, and maybe I'll pay for it next time. But... Uh, what happened here is the there are many people who would have written a check directly to a lab testing company with results better than what the current government PCR tests are. We just weren't allowed to do it. And the the CEO I spoke to specifically, when I'm thinking of, he actually said, I'm afraid. To, he said, I can do these tests for six bucks. I'm afraid to offer it because of what the government will do to me if I offer it. And when we create that kind of world where innovation is punished, Uh, That's a big contributor to this crisis that no one's talking about. And it sounds like you're aware of it as well. No, I I totally agree with that. But I guess the way I would push back a little bit is that we we do need the government to set standards. Like if you go and you get some kind of diagnostic test and they say, oh, you have cancer and but there's no standardization of that test. So you go here that you have cancer, you go there, you don't have cancer, you go here, you have COVID-19, you go there, you don't that will cause a lot of disruption. So yes, if every company was behaving ethically and we wouldn't need any regulators. And so that's, that's the role the government needs to play is setting standards. But don't block people. Just they have to say, I don't meet the government standard either because it doesn't exist or because it's dumb and here's why it's dumb. If they allowed that, we'd be in alignment. But what the government's, not just the US government, all the governments are doing is saying basically, 
if you don't play with our monopoly around these standards, then you don't get to do it. And I'm saying in a world of pandemics and in a world where things are moving very rapidly, it should be a human's choice whether they want to go with a standard or an unstandardized experimental test. I'd rather have. But but I, I just think that that governments need some, some societies need something to be regulated. Like if you're getting your blood test and it's telling you you should do X, Y or Z, there needs to be some standard measure. And that's a really important government function. If the government went away, they would say, oh, I'm getting this this cancer drug. Maybe I'll even an average person doesn't have the ability to evaluate whether company A, B, or C is making an effective cancer drug, whether the product, whether the ingredients that they say are there are there or whether they work. So I'm not saying we need government doing everything, but I think that there are some essential roles that governments play, and setting standards is a really important one. But that doesn't mean that they should block things. And and our government completely screwed up. And frankly, if it's a screw up and nothing or just a bunch of chaos, frankly, even a bunch of chaos would have been better than what we have. But I think we have to, I talked about seeing the North Star. The North Star has to be lean government that's setting standards and then companies that are free and encouraged to innovate to meet those standards. Well, they have to be to meet or beat those standards. So yeah. If, if we have standards, that's great. And if companies are allowed to say, these don't meet standards, yet we're selling them, then so well, there's, there's, seriously, there's setting standards, there's enforcing standards. Because what happens in a case like this, the standard test is a PCR test, which is pretty much a garbage test. So then the next company comes along and says, oh, we have an antibody test, which can actually tell you whether you have natural immunity. The government says that doesn't meet the standard. And two years later, they'll approve it. But that two years was a critical response time. We, we can no longer live in an environment where it's I, I, acceptable for anyone to do that. No, I I totally agree. And now is the test case of how desperate we are. We don't have the PCR, another test for whether you have the virus, and we don't have the serologic or the antibody test for whether you've had the virus and, and maybe you've developed antibodies. And we don't even know enough to know whether if you've had it and have antibodies, whether you're fully protected and, and for how long. So we need our governments moving really quickly. And we've seen how sclerotic our government is here. And you compare that to Taiwan and, and Singapore and those, uh, those governments who we trained, um, who are really moving quickly. And, and it's, ours is not an example of how to do things. So the only thing I'm saying is that I would, I would like, my goal is to articulate what it should be and then try to get as close to that as possible. If we say we don't need regulations, and just everybody do your own thing, we're going to wind up with chaos. A lot of people are going to be taken advantage of. And not everybody has your level of, of sophistication. So there's, there's a reason why we have governments just to protect us from maybe from ourselves. Well, you and I both believe that there, there ought to be governments here. I'm, I'm looking at how do we have the human medical freedom, uh, and, and even in a case like this, to say I'd like data about my body, even data of questionable yeah. value, uh, because... There are enough people out there, like the 120 people who get on a call and would do good things. And it, it mm-hmm. pains me in times of crisis when the people who want to do good things, frankly, have either the access or the money to do those good things and are forbidden to do those good yeah. things. And yeah. that happened here. And it's part of why we are where we are. Uh, yeah. and it, it'll probably continue to be that way. So I'm hoping yeah. that this highlights that. And I can tell you yeah. that in the 1941 moment that you, you mentioned, uh, when there were tanks rolling across the border, I'm pretty sure that the people who picked up something and did something about it didn't wait yes. to have regulatory approval to throw sticks or. Yeah, well, yeah, I know. But but going with that analogy, 
they would have been much better off organizing themselves so they're they're not throwing sticks. And that's and that's why we have organized militaries, and that's why we have organized uh, organized governments. And I think, but I think that you're right. That we're all seeing this incredible moment. That's what I was saying about we're all a little piece of FDR because where people are saying, all right, the government isn't doing it. How are we going to get the information we need? How are we going to organize to do what what needs to be done? And I think this is a this is a destructive moment, but it's also a really creative moment amidst all the pain. It is a moment of great opportunity right now uh, for yeah. for businesses, for innovators, and all. I think we we agree on that. And yeah. it's also one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, not just talk about the coronavirus and you know political responses and all that. This isn't really much of a political show. Hacking Darwin, your book on genetic engineering, it's level-headed where I'll tell people genetic engineering isn't good or bad. Just like I'll tell you vaccines aren't good or bad. I, I, I'm not as big a fan of them as you are. I, there is a risk yeah. and you just have to decide what is that risk and you know, do you really care about that vaccine or not? Um, the, the flip side of it though, to throw all vaccines out and to throw all genetic engineering out because of a, a dogmatic belief it's entirely possible that we can have very clean vaccines if we continue looking at how our immune system works. In fact, I think that's where we're going. We actually be able to get a vaccine that has nothing in it but specific particles that activate your immune system without the things that are probably causing some of the problems in some of the people today. And there's all sorts of stuff floating around around that. I don't even want to touch it. But the bottom line is it'll continue to innovate and they'll get better and better and better over time and give us more control over our own biology. Uh, so that's uh, that's I think where both of us are. And in your book with genetic engineering, you're saying, all right, here's the good side of it. And the same thing, if some big company, yes, I'm looking at you, Monsanto, you bunch of douchebags. Um, you guys, you can't use genetic engineering to sell more of your stupid soil destroying pesticides. If you do it, the humans will rise up. The ones who are left after you destroy our food system uh, will rise up. We will find you and hunt you down. Sorry, that's just how it works. So cut your shit out. Stop selling the poisons. And stop smearing the name of genetic engineering because it actually could be useful. You want, you want me to respond to that? All right. So, so let me say a, a few things. They, they are not funding me. I don't get a penny from them. Um, what I will say is I agree with you that genetic technologies, are they, they can really be great. They can help us with all sorts of things, including agriculture. The way we're going to feed ourselves must, with 10 billion humans, must include genetic technologies. There's really no practical way that we can do it. Yes. Like nobody said we have to have 10 billion humans, even Monsanto, which now part of, of Bayer, they're actually, you're going to hate me for saying this, doing some really important work on food science. And, and I know that Monsanto is, is demonized, but I, I, on my website, jamiemetzel.com, I have, I have a blog post exactly this laying out the case, not just, not for Monsanto, but for genetically modified crops and how they can be done safely and should be done as one piece of the mix alongside sustainable agriculture and all those things. And I 100% agree with you agreeing with me uh, that human genetic engineering, it scares people and it should scare people, but it excites people and it should excite people because no one wants their parents to die of some terrible cancer or their kids to die. And these are these tools can help us, but they can also hurt us. And that's why we have to have conversations like this. We do. And I mean, you, you get into things like gene drive for mosquitoes where we can get rid of mosquitoes that spread malaria, which kills way more people every year than the coronavirus, than the coronavirus will over the next 10 years. By the way, that's why some of this economic stuff we're just we're doing doesn't make a lot of sense. 
but th there are valid uses for it in life. And, and I'm, I'm all over having every tool in our arsenal available and use them intelligently. And you make a very important case for biohackers, for people who want control of their own biology in hacking Darwin. You got to pay attention to and understand these technologies so you don't demonize them and you don't blindly walk over a cliff either. And I think you, you narrate yeah. that very nicely in the book. So thank you for writing the book. Thanks for being on the show. And we're going to hop on Instagram next. If you guys are listening to the show, recent episodes, after the episodes, when I record them, I go straight to my Instagram page, dave.asprey, and let you ask a few questions of the guests before you've even heard the show. We're going to go there now. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.